You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I want to start by saying thank you to all of you who went to the website and signed up to become a member during our member drive. I know we hit you with a lot of stuff. Uh, I hope we kept it interesting and topical for you. Uh, We got some good feedback from people, and, and we also had a really successful member drive. So I just wanted to say thanks. Thanks for your efforts. Thanks for what you do, and and thanks for helping us share this message with more people. Uh, one of the special things that we do for our members uh, are these Ask Me Anything um, sessions. Um, I do a few of them each year. Uh, some of our other staff do them. Uh, we also try to bring in people who are interesting, people who've got some really kind of uh, unique things to say. One of those people, uh, a friend of mine named Jeff Speck, Jeff wrote uh, Walkable City, one of the most important books Uh, that's been published on urban planning issues in the last few years. He's followed it up now with Walkable City Rules, 101 Steps to Making Better Places. Uh, We brought Jeff on and allowed our members to ask him questions. Uh, What's on your mind? What would you like to hear from Jeff? And and Jeff spent over an hour answering those questions. We don't uh, put anything behind a paywall here. So part of the kind of agreement that, that we have with our audience and with our members is that from time to time, we might do something special for our members, uh, such as these Ask Me Anythings. But we're always going to release that content to the public. Our goal here is to get this message out in front of as many people as we can. And so uh, we took the, uh, the webinar, the conversation with Jeff, and have now released it as a podcast. So what you're going to hear now is a little over an hour of Q&A with one of the brightest minds in urban planning that you'll ever run across, Jeff Speck. Uh, and, and the questions that our members had of him and, and how he answered them. And I got to say, uh, I found it not only enjoyable, but, but I learned a lot too. I got stuff out of this. So hang on and, uh, and here's some Jeff Speck. I, I've got a couple of questions for you, Jeff. The, the book is called Walkable City Rules, 101 Steps to Making Better Places. Why? Uh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> why a hundred and one? Why? Why did did you just get to a hundred and say I got to do one more? Was as it- my as my eight year old said, there should be a subtitle: not Dalmatians. <laughs> no, I mean I knew it was going to be about a hundred when I started putting it together. I knew it was going to be a hundred, and I just thought a hundred and one was catchier. I have yeah. no, I have no uh, more intellectual um, explanation. Well, you, you're kind of a nonconformist. I think 99 and 100 would have been kind of standard, but you, it's like you up the ante by one, set a new, a new bar. I did actually, I was already at 101 rules, but I added a rule. I had to consolidate two rules at the end to okay. add one. So in a sense, 101 is in keeping with the spirit, which is I thought I was done and then I had to add one more. Right. Um, what, talk a little bit about your inspiration for this specific book. Why, why, why was 101 Rules needed in the, in, the, in the marketplace of books? Well, I wrote Walkable City six years. I should say I published Walkable City six years ago. And, you know, when you finish a book, you think you're never going to write another book. And um, it did a lot of the things I wanted to do. And it had, it, it had a fair amount of detail in there and data in there and other things that, that made it a bit of a tool. Um, but it was really conceived of as, you know, hopefully like literary nonfiction. And right. I remember actually when I um, was working on Suburban Nation with Andres and Adwani and Elizabeth Peter Zyberg, I talked to, to Vitold Rybczynski. And he's, you know, probably the biggest seller of books about design anywhere. Um, and his main advice for suburban nation was to have no pictures. Wow. And he, said, he said, if you have pictures, it'll be back in the architecture section or the design section. If you have no pictures, it'll be in front with the current affairs. Okay. And I said, well, that's great. And that's probably right. Um, but suburban nation was actually based on a lecture that Andres used to give and then other stuff by Liz. A very, it was a very visual, you know, the towns versus sprawl argument was a very visual argument. Right. Um, 
I'm going to turn my email off so it stops um, beeping. Hold on for a second. Quit mail. Um, and, um, and so it couldn't be a book without pictures. Walkable City, though, was a book about, you know, not just how to be more walkable, but why to be more walkable. And it was really meant to be a, a conversation with people who aren't just into design. Um, and the, it, I found it was very, I find, found it was very easy to write it as a book um, that was um, something that would hopefully go in the front of the store. And I think that actually worked. Like, it sold a lot of copies. It still sells very well. And I keep meeting people who had never read a planning book until they read Walkable City. So it, it managed to um, talk to a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily have been drawn to a book that looked more like a design book. But then people would complain to me that there were no pictures. That's fine. Um, but the, the, the stories I was hearing was that people were, were like, you know, they were convinced by it. And they go to hearings and they'd like, shout things and hold the book up and say, it's in here or whatever. Right. Uh, but then they, they found that they left, they felt kind of stranded ultimately because it didn't have enough data, enough details, uh, enough diagrams, charts, pictures. You know, it doesn't say that uh, an angle parking space should be this deep if it's 45 degrees and that deep if it's 60 degrees and how thick does the travel lane have to be behind it if you're going to back out without hitting the opposing traffic and all that stuff. And so I wanted to have one book that would have really almost every tool that you need to do the kind of work in communities that, that my colleagues and I do, which is, um, you know, to make them more walkable, to make them more livable or to try. Um, and so I gave myself a new task, which was both to kind of include all that information, but also to organize it in a way that's simple, you know, simple and super easy to use. So the 101 rules, you know, each rule, um, you know, I could pick a random, rule like 45, you know, cut the extra lanes. Yep. And each rule is two pages and has like a headline and a subtitle and then a bunch of text explaining what to do. Uh, some pictures that show befores and afters and, you know, places you can go to see how it's been done. And then actually there's a rule at the end. So this one's called cut the extra lanes. When lanes are not needed for traffic, all they do is cause speeding. And then the rule at the bottom is, Find those streets in your city where the supply of lanes exceeds the demand for them and convert the extra lanes to other uses. And that's something we do all over the place. You know, and, you know, we make the argument, and I make the argument elsewhere in the book about induced demand and uh, you, you can reduce lanes without causing traffic congestion and all those arguments. But, you know, those are tough arguments to work from in communities. Most of the change that I've been able to make in communities has been actually finding just extra lanes where there's a mismatch between demand for lanes and supply of lanes, then you can take those lanes and turn them into bike lanes or into more parking or other things. Right. Um, so that's a rule about, about how to do that. And it, does, it really does get into the details. So, um, and it's organized like, like many new urbanist things, it's organized from the scale of the uh, region to the scale of the building. And it's in 19, I couldn't get 20, I tried, it's in 19 chapters. Um, super easy to find you know, what you're looking for. So, um, you know, just to look at a bit of it, you know, one chapter is called Cell Cycling. So, you know, okay, I want to convince people to have more bike lanes in my community. Um, that's a section with three rules. There's a section called, um, you know, Focus on Intersections. And that includes five rules, you know, make great crosswalks, keep signals simple, bag the beg buttons and countdown clocks, replace signals with always stop signs, um, and build naked streets and shared spaces. So, you know, it's it's meant to be, you know, I would, I would love it if people would read the book from end to end. And I wrote it, I hope to be entertaining enough that people would make that choice, but it's much more of a, of a tool and a reference. So the, the elevator pitch is that it weaponizes walkable city for deployment in the field, which is a little bit macho, but you get the idea. I, I felt like the walkable city was a book that I could recommend not only to people who were technical professionals, but also to just people who I could recommend this one to my mom, you know, like my mom, the teacher uh, say, Hey, this is going to open your eyes and help out a little bit. Uh, I feel like with the, the 101 rules, what you've done is in that same spirit of being able to communicate to technical people, uh, but also to non-technical people, 
uh, you formatted this in a way that I, I think is universal. Talk about, was that your intent? And I guess, what's the audience you uh, are, are trying to reach here? Is it, is it professionals or is it everybody? You know, it's funny because I'm going to readings or book events and they're set up by my publisher, Island Press, great publisher, and they were a real pleasure to work with. And um, I asked the audience, I said, is, is my publisher here? And then I'm like, okay, some of you should not be buying this book. Some of you should be buying my other book. Right. <laughs> which is a different <laughs> publisher. Um, but in all honesty, uh, this, I don't think this book will find as large an audience mm -hmm. as Walkable City did because it's not designed to. Um, it is meant for people who are, who are involved in this work. Now, that's a lot of people. That's, of course, all the planners, uh, all the public officials, you know, planning board, zoning board uh, people. Um, it's citizen activists. It's people who care about their community and want to see, make their community better. But, you know, someone who wants an entertaining read uh, on the subject of city planning um, or just to learn a bit about what city planning is and uh, how it relates to their lives, then I would still send them towards Walkable City. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me switch to a question here from Roger. Uh, he says, we get a lot of pushback on 10-foot wide travel lanes. Is there additional professional reference coming to validate narrower lanes? So, um, one of your favorite topics, I know. I know. It's, you know I wrote an article on, in City Lab about that, if, if he's interested, that talks about all of the, I think it's called Why 12-Foot Lanes Are a Disaster. That was the headline they put on it. It was like, why 12-Foot why Lanes Are a Disaster for Safety or Society or something like that. It's a great um, article. Yeah. I spend so much time on that because I think it really matters. And there's a, there's four whole points here, right size the lanes. The first one is adopt a 10 foot standard for free flow lanes, understanding that local lanes can be narrower, right? Right. And then, re, and then restripe to a 10 foot standard, which, which talks about how to do it properly. And then I go on to talk about building slow flow and yield flow streets, as well as expanding the fire chief's mandate, which means, hey, you're really responsible for public safety and public health, not for getting to the accident quickly, which your streets caused to happen because they were too wide, right? right. But the, uh, I talk in the book about all the, all the information I have, which is the, um, you know, the NACTO decision. Um, you know, the National Association of City Transportation Officials makes it very clear uh, that 10 feet is an appropriate width for travel lanes. I talk about the AASHTO statement that, if you, that, that, that if you want people, it basically, I don't remember exactly how it goes, but what it clearly states and implies is that if you don't want people going more than 45 miles an hour, the lane should not be wider than 10 feet, right? right, right. So I've, got, I've got that data in here. Um, I've got a, a, a nice graph that shows how travel speed increases with lane width. Um, so it's all the data I could find. Um, so it's all, it is all gathered there. There's, there's no... Um, since, since NACTO, there's no additional thing that I've heard about. I have some issues with the NACTO book because they say and they show that um, bus lanes may be, not should be, bus lanes may be 11 feet wide. Yeah. And, um, you know, of course, most transit agencies want the largest lanes they can have. But I, I'm quite convinced, and I've seen in, in operation in many places, that in a multi-lane street, in which, you know, the, the lane lines are not walls, right? Right, not right. Walls. No, there's a there's some movement there, right. That, that having a, 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 you don't need lanes wider than 10 feet to hold an eight and a half foot bus. And um, of course, having the lanes wider than that just causes the buses to speed and trucks to speed. I was going to say, you, you, I, think the, uh, I think the limiting factor there is you need, you can have 10 foot lanes at neighborhood speeds if the goal is to get things up really fast, you're going to, yeah, you will have problems at 10 foot lanes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but you know, what's the worst that can happen if a bus in a 10 foot lane passes another bus in a 10 foot lane with two buses parked on the side of the street, you know, in eight foot parking spaces. First right. of all, that absolutely never in the history of the world has happened. Right. Secondly, what it would cause is, um, you know, some friction that would make the speed safer. Everybody would have to slow down, and uh, that's actually the goal in, in walkable places. 
So I actually quote in my book, the one transit agency that gets it that I've met in America, which is Des Moines. Okay. And the head of the Des Moines transit agency says, you know, we understand that most, most transit rides begin and end as a walk and pedestrians are our customers and we don't want to do anything to uh, thin our pedestrian, sorry, thin our customer base. Right. Um, so we want 10 foot lanes so that pedestrians feel more comfortable. Roger, in his question, uh, alluded to being from Minnesota. So I'm going to add an extra like Minnesota thing onto this. Uh, I know some of the pushback that we get here for 10 foot lanes is you need room for snow storage. Um, I'm going to let you tackle that one because I I know you've been to places where it snows. So I was in Minnesota a week ago or two weeks ago. You were in Grand Forks, right? I, I crossed the bridge from Grand Forks, North Dakota. And if being in an airport doesn't count as visiting a state, yeah. I've got really sad news, sad news for you because it means Minnesota was my last state and not, <laughs> not North Dakota. Um, but, you know, the, the, the story there is that you, you need to go to places where it snows a lot that have narrow lanes. And, right. of course, they're all, they're all over the place. Um, the, the cute way to answer the question is, you know, the narrower the street, the less you have to plow. Right. But the real, the real answer is, you know, where is your snow storage? Do you right. have snow emergency? Because, of course, they do. So no one's parking in the parking lanes during snow emergency. But, but more to the point, you know, what's the boulevard section between the roadway and the sidewalk where you can store the snow? The only place where it's a real issue um, is in, in places where there's so much snow, like, like Butte, Montana, or ski towns, you know, way up in the mountains, that they actually tent it in the middle of the street. Right. And right. if they're doing that, then, you, you know, for example, I, I did a, a plan for Butte, and we really couldn't have the um, protected uh, bike lanes. We couldn't have the cycle tracks uh, because that caused the street to be so narrow that there was nowhere to tent. But what we did do was add a lot of, inter- you know, these streets aren't very wide. We added integrated bike lanes, and it's great because no one's biking in the snowstorm anyway. Right. So the, the five or six extra feet on the side of the street uh, for the bicycles actually give you the room that you need to push the cars outward to tent the snow in the middle uh, when there's a snowstorm. So that's a solution in the worst kind of place. Well, not you worse. And, no, you is. and I have, uh, you and I were both in Driggs, Idaho. I know I brought yeah. this up before. And uh, when I was there, I actually drove over to Jackson and it's like driving through a tunnel in some places with the yeah. amount of snow they get. Um, these streets still don't have to be obnoxiously wide. I mean, there, there's yeah. ways to, Ways to do this. And like you say, in the, in the winter and summer, there are two different conditions, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's not, it's not that they don't have to be obnoxiously wide. I mean, the, the, the simple fact is that there's a lot of places, you know, older communities like Marblehead, Massachusetts, for example, where, right. um, or, or parts of Boston, honestly, where, mm-hmm. yeah, the street gets super tight when it snows a ton. Um, but those are school days anyway. I mean, those are no school days anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, this is a kind of a longer one. I'll, I'll try to summarize here. Josh uh, asking, he says, my city's looking at a redesign of a small street. I spoke at the council meeting as, about slowing the cars and narrowing the lanes in the name of pedestrian and bike safety. The city said this design is a win because the new sidewalks will meet the ADA, but there's still three lanes and it's 12 feet wide. They said the engineer recommended three lanes, 12 feet due to traffic counts. What's your advice on taking it to the next level? Uh, you know, why is it not, why is, why is that not walkable just because it, it now meets ADA? Well, clearly you need to meet ADA and that's right. fine. Um, I'm curious, three lanes, it sounds probably like it's a one-way street. You can ask um, him to. My guess, I'll give you my local example. We just did this too. And, and the, the state engineer said, you know, now we've got a great walkable street um, three lanes was two lanes and a center turn lane, right? Uh, you know, so two directions and then narrow sidewalks on the side, but they meet the ADA requirements. Yeah. Well, it matters what the lane widths are. Um, you know, I talk a lot and we new urbanists talk a lot about the four to three road diet. Right. So if you have a, um, you know, a four lane street that's two way and you convert it to a three lane street, that's two way as I've done, many of us have done lots of different places. If you, you know, keep the lanes the proper width, that's a much, much safer street and no less capacity because four lane streets are super inefficient. Three lane streets are super efficient. But whether or not the streets are one way or two way, um, you know, the first question is, what's the car count? Let's say it's a 
uh, two-way two street. If the car count is um, 10,000 or less, then you don't, there's no point for that third lane or for turn lanes and intersections. When I did the plan for, um, for downtown Oklahoma City, the traffic engineer there, very enlightened, Laura Story, she made a rule based on my recommendation that if there were no more than 10,000 cars per day at an intersection, you couldn't put in a left turn lane, which cities okay. do without thinking everywhere all the time now. All the time, yeah. Right. But, but what that does is, of course, it causes, it causes speeding. Now, if it's a one-way street, then you can count on 600, 800 cars uh, per, per peak hour in each lane. And you're going to come up with an answer as to how many lanes you need to have to handle the traffic that you're currently experiencing and, are, and with a reasonable growth rate are anticipating. So that's the first question is how many lanes do you need based on the car counts? And all, that, uh, all those formulas are in, in the book. Secondly, though, you know, there's actually been a study of, done by a Florida DOT, done by the Florida DOT, that said something that's fairly obvious, which is that streets with 12 feet la foot lanes have no greater capacity than streets with 10 foot lanes. Right. Because you can't fit, you can actually, you actually can fit two cars in a 12 foot lane, but of course no one does, right? So um, since it's one car per lane, you know, per however many seconds, um, there is zero capacity gain by making the lanes wider. What you do get is a speed gain. And by the way, for your one thing I talk about in the book, one of my rules is called um, uh, something like frame it in terms of speeding, which is I never go to a place and say, we're going to slow the cars down. I say, we're, I'm here to help you stop illegal speeding. Right. Because we just want cars to go the speed limit. And when you get them to, you know, slow down about the seven miles an hour or so that they're tending to average above the speed limit in a local street, um, you know, that's, that makes everyone happy because you're eliminating speeding, but we don't say we're going to make their, their trips slower. Right. <coughs> let, me, uh, let me ask this question from Sylvia. She says she lives in uh, Ontario and they have a rule there limiting curb parking in residential areas to three hours. Uh, she's tried to talk to them about getting rid of this rule, uh, but she's getting pushback from things like snow clearance, fire trucks, and, and people don't like them. Planning says I can't get rid of the minimum parking requirements for residential areas because of enforcing that parking rule. Uh, any advice? So it sounds like a chicken and an egg kind of problem in a sense. They're requiring all this off-street parking in residential areas because yeah. you can only park on the street for three hours. Right. So they need to keep the minimum parking requirements because there is no capacity on the street because of the three-hour rule. Right. I happen to live in a community... Uh, Brookline, Massachusetts, which is a suburb surrounded by Boston, very urban. I'm right on the streetcar line. You might hear it as I'm speaking at some points. Um, that doesn't allow overnight parking on any of its streets. And when I moved here, I was like, that's preposterous. That's ridiculous. I'll get rid of that. <laughs> right. And of course, <clears throat> you know, I, I, realized, I, I learned pretty quickly that it wasn't worth trying because um, it's actually one of the ways that the community, you know, you could say, it limits the amount of housing in the community for better right. or for worse. Right. Um, it also limits, I would say it does, it does to a certain degree limit the amount of driving in the community because it limits the number of cars in the community. And actually right. we have a condition here. It definitely limits car ownership. The typical person in Brookline owns, I'd say one car per family um, as opposed to, you know, two, which is more standard in other places. There are a lot of people who live here without cars. Um, and that rule probably helps in that regard, but I would say in most suburban places, when you don't allow the parking on the street, you're actually widening the street effectively and causing people to drive a lot faster. And there really isn't a good reason um, for that three hour rule, unless it's a retail location where you want to churn the shoppers at the curb and not have the, uh, the, the workers or the store owners taking up the parking that's for uh, shoppers. Right. It doesn't sound like that's the condition. So I would, I would be very curious to learn what the, where the rule comes from. And uh, because very few places have a rule like that. I know in a lot of New Jersey also, you're not allowed to park on the streets overnight, but they, it's kind of an outdated concept. I, I wonder if you have any thoughts. Cause one of the things that Sylvia mentioned was, you know, they, they, they want to keep that turnover for uh, emergency response and snow removal. And how do you, 
how do you talk to cities and decision makers about the difference between kind of peak events and unique events and right. like the standard every day? Here's how we're going to use this most of the time. Well, that part of the question actually made no sense to me because, um, you know, three hour parking ban, I mean, sorry, three hour parking limit isn't going to do anything regarding to snow regarding snow removal. <laughs> right. You need to have a, a storm emergency rule in effect. And in terms of emergency vehicles, well, you know, who knows if there's a fire when you've got your three hours, when you're in the middle of your three hours. So that's a, you know, that, that's a bad way to solve the problem. There are more direct ways uh, to solve the problem. Right. So, um, but you asked a bigger question. Oh, so um, was it, how do I talk about what, what how do I talk well, about? How do we, I, I think a lot of times, and I've seen this too, mm -hmm. where, when we go out to design something, whether it's the amount of parking or whether it's the lane width or, you know, the, what have you, uh, what we tend to design for is the peak event. Oh, um, yeah. Here's, yeah. Here's the big thing we got going on. How do, we, uh, how do we think, how should we be thinking about peak events in relationship to our, our design of spaces that for most times are not in peak events? Right. So your, your, your question kind of implies the answer, which is... Uh, that we want to design a place that functions the 99% of the time that people are in it for as many people that are, uh, you know, for all the different people that are in it. And, you know, if you optimize a street for all of the peak events uh, factors that it might experience, you'd have no room for houses. I mean, it's just, it's impossible to, to add them all up. So, um, you know, the first one is to say, you know, let's be, let's, let's think about most of the people most of the time. The second thing is to say the peak event is a management problem, not a design problem. And, you know, I, I've worked in a lot of places where, um, you know, you're hiring uh, police and other folks to manage traffic in those unusual conditions. And I think most cities have those things that happen on a regular basis, you know, fairs and festivals where they're even closing streets and doing other stuff. And yeah, you need a, you need a, a retinue of, of police and other people to, to help you out. But, but management's one of the tools that's available to you. Right. Um, this, I, I, I'm interested in how you respond to this. It, my, here's from Paige. Uh, my city of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which I've been to. I don't know if you've been to. I did a walkability study there. One of my least effective. Okay. Well, then you will. I'm very interested in how you'll answer this. My city of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania is just starting feasibility studies for a pedestrian bridge project. What are the pitfalls we should avoid in this process? So I do, I've done about 14 walkability studies in different cities. One of the earliest was Bethlehem. Um, some of my studies have led to complete redesign of all the streets in a downtown, like in New Albany, Indiana, or in downtown Oklahoma City. Oklahoma some City, of yeah. led, Some of them have led to very little. It's a, it's a function of the politics and the conditions on the ground. Bethlehem was the one that produced perhaps the least outcomes, but it did result in some downtown streets being reconfigured you know, if you ask them, they'll say they did a lot. I would say they didn't do a lot, but um, some downtown streets were reconfigured. Parking was altered so that lanes would be the right width, all that sort of thing. I'm curious whether this pedestrian bridge is across the river in Bethlehem or if it's across the street. Because obviously that's two different things. That, that, is, uh, that is interesting. I'll wait and see if, she, uh, if, yeah. if Paige uh, adds something to the, the thing. Cause... But, you know, the, the general point about pedestrian bridges or tunnels it's across Lehigh, she says. Across the Lehigh, I believe the Lehigh River, I believe. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. you know, the, uh, that's a simpler question, which is, uh, I mean, a simpler, simpler question to answer, which is that, um, you know, that's a bridge which is going to increase mobility. It's not providing an alternative to crossing a street. And, you know, in most cases, when cities create pedestrian bridges or tunnels over busy streets, um, no matter what you do, people end up crossing the street anyway, right? right, right. And um, people hate to go up and down. They much rather risk their lives. They don't want to go through a tunnel that smells like, you know, something from the human body. And um, uh, so those generally are a bad alternative to the proper solution, which is to bite the bullet and put a proper signal there that's gonna, going to, you know, impede traffic a little bit as it goes through just to allow that phase for pedestrians to go through. If you're building a pedestrian bridge across a river, you know, good on you, as they'd say in Australia. Um, but yeah, you just got to make sure that it's, it's got ample width to handle um, 
uh, pedestrians and cyclists without them getting in each other's way. That's about it. That's about it. How, how do you approach? Don't hire, don't hire Calatrava because he'll bank. He'll bank. <laughs> <laughs> what, how do you, I mean, we had this thing happen down in Miami with the, uh, the, the, the elevated bridge collapsing. Uh, and, you know, I think that put a lot of focus on that type of design. Um, are there places where a pedestrian bridge is something that makes sense? And I guess, is there a rule for, you know, because I, I, it's funny because here in my little town where there's no traffic, I brought up, you know, the need to get people across the uh, the highway through the middle of town, and my city manager, the very first response was, "Well, let's go get a we'll put in a pedestrian bridge." Yeah. Um, are there places where it actually makes some sense? Yeah, railroad tracks. Okay. And um, and highways. I mean, a true highway. Yeah. You may you may have a road going through that's just won't accept a signal. That's you know high speed. So yeah, I mean, there's there's absolutely places there's absolutely places for it, but where you see them being deployed in in most cases is a street that that even has you know regular intersections with signals, but uh, you know someone died there. Right. So instead of fixing the signals and making the cars a little bit more inconvenienced, uh, they say let's put the bridge in. Here's a here's a question from Jake, a good friend of mine from uh, I know he's from Fergus Falls, Minnesota. Uh, for improving walkability of established neighborhoods without sidewalks where mature trees and citizen resistance makes putting in those sidewalks difficult, do walking lanes at the street level, like with striping or, or, or something like that, does that work? And have you seen places where that's been well received? Um, I've certainly recommended it in a bunch of places. Mm -hmm. uh, ideally, you get some sort of physical barrier, like a little curb. Um, you know, a wonderful example that you see a fair amount, but it's, it's for sidewalks, but you could easily use it in another condition. Um, you see a lot, in, you see in a number of the bridges um, over Rock Creek Park in Washington, D.C., are these kind of metal barriers. They're only about this tall. Okay. But they're very solid. They're made of nice kind of tubular steel as opposed to your typical highway, thin, ugly barriers. Sure. Um, and they give you absolute confidence as a pedestrian that you're not going to get hit because they're very strong. The question there is, um, what's the width of the roadway? And chances are there's a shoulder or there is additional width where you can narrow it to 20 feet, like exactly 20 feet, even narrower in a pinch, right? I mean, nine foot travel lanes work. It's just a question of getting away with it technically, right? Or, or uh, politically. But, um, and then you probably want to pick one side of the street and not the other because there's not enough room for both. And there's so little pedestrian traffic that you don't really need to have both, right? right. Um, and then delineating it with paint, but ideally some sort of physical um, object, you know, be it little, little, you know, armadillos they're called, yep. uh, or, um, or this barrier that I talked about, or something just to make it, I mean, that's certainly better than having no sidewalks, absolutely. Right, right. Um, it, it's interesting here in Minnesota, uh, we get the, the, the pushback always from having the vertical element being, well, now, you know, we can't snowplow this. Now, you know, we can't keep this clean. What, what do you, have you seen something that works in snow areas? Uh, is it just, uh, do we do it just during the summer months? Is it something that is removed in the winter or is there something, something that you'd recommend? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's a little more expensive to go down into the street, right? Right. Um, but the idea of a kind of a mountable curb, that's just a very slight angle. Um, we're doing something like this in, uh, in Michigan, where we're making the street narrower than the snowplows want it to be. Uh, and the median that we're putting in just has a mountable edge, almost like okay. a rumble strippy kind of thing. So yeah, and that's still better than nothing. for a Right. Yeah. All right, David. Um, David had another question at the top that I, I had a hard time reading, but he's come back with a second one. And I, I apologize, David, for not adding your first one. Uh, I'm going to try to circle back to it and, and see if maybe it was just me. Are there examples, here's his question, are there examples of doing TOD, transit-oriented development, where the community has recognized the added value of transportation stations by using publicly owned or by purchasing underutilized malls in advance of future development? This might keep the profits regionally concentrated, doing things smarter, question mark. So uh, yeah. no. I'll let you react to that one. Go ahead. No. No. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm not aware of, I'm not aware of a, a city, ma- you know, making that sort of investment. It right. may have happened. I, if, it, if it's happened, I'm not aware of it. Right. What, by the what way, a, you said TOD and the trains are going by outside. I don't know if you can hear them. What, what is, um, let, me, let me delve into this one just a little bit. When you are located, I was in, well, let me give you a little, I was in, I was in Akron, Ohio last week. And uh, there was a, a film crew there doing a documentary that wanted a little bit of my time. And we went out to this kind of failing mall and we're there in the parking lot for about an hour. And I think the saddest thing was that across the strode from the parking lot, there was a little, um, uh, it's like a, a, it was a, it was a junkie bus stop, right? But it was clear that this was a bus stop getting a lot of use because the whole time we were there, people kept pouring across these parking lots uh, to the bus stop, back across the strode, back and forth, people in wheelchairs and scooters uh, and buses kept coming in and out and in and out. It seemed to me to be like a really poorly located, uh, you know, bus stop. Obviously not a bus stop with TOD. <laughs> there was no, right. you know, the, the transit oriented development was the parking lot of the mall and the mall and like yeah. a muffler shop and that kind of thing. When we're locating uh, transit facilities like that, wh- wh- how, do, how do we do them so that you are getting better walkability, better use? What are some of the mistakes that transit agencies make when they're, when they're doing these things? Well, I talk about like the, you know, the crisis of the last, 100 yards, which is even in urban areas, I, I think this trend is, is waning. But even in urban areas, you know, for many years that the, the idea of the transit stop is an intermodal facility, uh, a park and ride, even, even in a city, right? right? A park and ride, a kiss and ride, um, and a place to transfer, for example, from train to bus caused a lot of the uh, interface between the vehicle and the walkable part of the downtown to be separated by about a hundred yards of parking and other kind of uh, turbine like facilities for moving cars and buses around and, and then killing ridership among those who have a choice, right? A lot of people don't have a choice and right. that's what we're experiencing at the mall. That's but, what I was seeing but, in Akron. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's always a struggle. Um, I'm working on a TOD right now in Newton, Massachusetts, which is, which is one of the ends of the Green Line. The Green Line in Boston leaves underground, comes out, passes by my house, um, but has four different branches, one of which ends at a place called Riverside. Mm-hmm. And currently, Riverside has a um, huge surface parking lot. And we're doing the classic TOD solution, which is to turn the surface parking lot, which the... Um, you know, people come from all around, including New Hampshire, to park there to go to Red Sox games, among other things. Right, it's a huge right. Parking lot. And we can't make it go away. It's very important to the T and to people. Um, so we're turning that into a parking structure, which is freeing up like 10 acres or more of land for a million and a half square feet of development that we, that we uh, hope to put there. And um, there was a previous plan for the site that literally created under the parking structure, you can just imagine how pleasant this would have been. Under the parking structure, this massive bus circulation system that would hold a dozen buses and, and you would get off the train, you'd go under the parking structure and find your bus, even though there's like uh, um, maybe two buses an hour right. going through this place. It's not a massive exchange. Then there was another place for looping for the um, handicap van and another place for looping for the kiss and ride. And each of these was little turbines located in the previous plan that destroyed the walkability of the place. We've redesigned it with a town square and the town square has room in it for six buses to park. It has room in it. uh, It has a loop in it for the handicapped van. It has a loop in it for the kiss and ride, but it looks and feels like a town square. And in fact, we took the parking lot in order to create the town square. We took the parking lot and we moved it about 200 feet from the train stop. So that creates actually a place where people will shop because there's a distance between the two anchors of the train and the parking lot, for example. But if you think of it as, you know, if the goal is we're trying to make a town and then, oh yeah, the buses have to work as opposed to, you know, we're making a transportation processing facility that people will have to live in. Um, it results in a very different outcome. I was going to ask you about that, that kind of mindset. How, how much of this is just, uh, I, I know it's easy and I'll, I'll put this on me, not on you. I know it's easy to bash traffic engineers 
and uh, transit planners as being kind of myopic and, you know, focused on one thing. How much of it is, though, the fact that we made this a lot about efficiency and not really about humans and life and right. place? There's a, fun, uh, there's a fun book by Darren Nordahl, N-O-R-D-A-H-L, called My Kind of Transit. I don't know if you've seen it. He was no. the town planner in Davenport, Iowa. It's called My Kind of Transit. And he makes that argument. In some ways, it's the anti-Jarrett Walker argument. Um, he makes the argument that, um, you know, transit is movable public space. And we need to make it as, we need to be placemaking with our vehicles and placemaking with everything we do around transit if we want people to use it. Um, the Jarrett Walker argument, which I, I think is ultimately more important uh, and he shares it with Paul Moore and the Nelson Nygaard guys and all the people who are really revolutionizing bus networks all around the U.S. is that, yes, efficiency in short transfers is what's going to get you the most ridership. And, of course, um, we're all guilty, to use Jarrett Walker's term, we're all guilty of elite projection. And we're, we've, you know, we, we're in danger of designing transit systems around the pleasurable experience we want to have as opposed to the fact that for many people it is their lifeline to get everywhere they're, that they're going. Uh, throughout the city. Um, but, you know, there's, there's efficiency in terms of, and what these guys are doing, in terms of redesigning networks um, to be really functional. And I get into how you do that in the book, and I, of course I got it from Jarrett, and Jarrett helped me um, to describe the way that many, not many, but a good number of cities are um, reshaping their bus networks in a, way, in a way that it costs no more money to run the buses, but they're providing a much more robust uh, system of frequent transfers that are getting people where they're going a lot faster. But yeah. that's, a different, that's a different approach from saying, um, you know, we have to move the vehicle speedily through these station areas, uh, which then creates, then erodes the creation of, of place in those areas. Right. All right. Kristen uh, says, I'm working in Manatee County, Florida which I've been, I kind of like Manatee County, Florida. Uh, are there any insights you might be able to provide about on-site stormwater retention? It seems to me that the practice is spreading things out even more rapidly than parking would, but I don't necessarily mm -hmm. understand the dynamics. And then she says, this wasn't a thing in Ohio or in North Carolina. Well, it's, <laughs> it's more of an issue in Florida. For That's a good true. Um, and I, you know, I lived in Florida for a decade working with DPZ um, and we were incredibly frustrated in trying to make you know the sort of urbanism that would cause people not to drive and thereby help the environment um, by the environmental rules that would cause us to spread everything out um, due to stormwater. There's there's no easy answer to meeting those requirements um, in a way that makes urbanism more possible. Um, you know, but the the biggest thing that we would fight, and I don't know what the state laws are right now, but the the biggest discussion that was somewhat tenuous um, and, and flippable was when you take like a strip center or a dead mall or some other 100% or mostly paved uh, uh, site and you want to turn it into a mixed-use walkable community, do you have to satisfy the current right. requirements right. or could you just make it a little bit better than it is now? Mm-hmm. Because the fact is that the, the, the rules in Florida currently, if you inherit a 100% paved site, well, not currently, when I was last working there, so like a decade ago, if you inherit on a 100% paved site, um, you, have to, you, you, you can't just improve it. You've got to improve it to the current standard, which basically makes urbanism impossible on that site. Right. I've also found, just from an engineering design standpoint, uh, having been on kind of both sides of this, the engineering and like the permitting side, um, we will often design for, you know, 100 year storm events, really very intense levels of runoff, and essentially uh, assess or pat tax or pay for this massive stormwater system in an urban area. And then when we go to do the permitting on the other side, which is there's kind of a wall between those two, a wall of, of not only technical expertise and understanding, but they don't talk to each other. Um, right. we, will, we will require the same stormwater management on a place with very expensive stormwater utility in place as we do on the, like the greenfield lot out on the edge where uh -huh. none of that exists. Yeah. 
do you, you see that a lot happening? Uh, that's, that is something I can't speak to. I, I haven't, um, I haven't had your experience there. Okay. So we'll talk about things I know. All right. This is one, you know, <laughs> Ronald, uh, wants to know, are there any recommendations on how to prevent a city council from adopting Appendix D of the International Fire Code? And he said requiring the 26-foot access roads. Uh, and yeah. he goes on to talk about, you know, the fire district uses their worst case examples, da-da-da-da-da. You know, Jeff, you want to have this blood on your hands, uh, you know, when children die, come on. Right. So, um that, I'm wondering if it's appropriate for this venue for me to do a little reading. Go for it. No, please. But, that would be, that'd be fantastic. But the, means I have to find it, but the, um, you know, I talked about one of my, one of my rules was called expand the uh, fire chief's mandate. Right. Right. Which is 51. Right. And I talked about that exactly. I, um, I think by the way, uh, I, I've, I've been in this conversation a long time and I've tried to state uh, in different ways. The, the way you are framing it there is really brilliant. And, and that is changing what we're asking fire people to do. So please go ahead. And I got that from fire chiefs, actually. So okay. shift the focus from response time to public safety. Perhaps the most, actually, Chuck, I thought of you when I was writing this. There's a sentence I'm going to pause after because when I, when I finish that sentence, I'm like, that sounds like something that Chuck would write. So, <laughs> well, I'm flattered already. Perhaps the, mo perhaps the most ironic day in the life of every city planner is the one in which she discovers that the great, her greatest opponent in making her city streets safer is the fire chief. How this bizarre circumstance has come to occur in city after city across the United States is a veritable morality play on the topics of siloed thinking, the confusion of ends and means and Murphy's law. And it goes something like this. That was my Maroon moment. <laughs> Beautiful. The fire chief's job perform the fire chief's job performance is typically judged on response time. The fire department's budget is often based on the number of calls that fire trucks respond to. These two facts conspire to replace a fire chief's natural mandate, optimizing the life safety of the community with a much narrower focus, sending out lots of trucks and getting them to their destinations quickly. Into this mix, we can throw two additional ingredients, union make work and the fire equipment upsell. Over the years, firefighters unions have introduced contractual language stipulating the minimum numbers of firefighters on a call. Simultaneously, firefighting equipment suppliers have infiltrated the ranks of the organizations drafting the official guidelines for firefighting equipment. The, unsur the, this, the unsurprising outcome, even larger fire trucks. As a result, most cities have found themselves under the protection of fire chiefs who, when introduced to the planning conversation, advocate for three things that make their cities more dangerous. Wider streets, broader intersections, and the introduction of unwarranted traffic signals. Wider streets. Rule 50 discussed eight-foot lanes and two-way, 12-foot lanes, two things that increase safety in most older walkable cities and which are impermissible according to something called the 20-foot clear. And yeah, I know it's gone up to like 24 and 26, depending on who you're talking to. Right. 20 foot clear appears in the universal fire code, not a law, but a standard that many cities adopt and requires that all streets maintain 20 feet of clear space between any obstructions such as parked cars. Many fire chiefs apply this law indiscriminately, not realizing that it hails from cul-de-sac suburbia, where there is only one path to each fire. When a street can be entered from both ends, there's no longer a need to do what the 20 foot clear allows, which is to park a big truck, put down its stabilizers, and drive another big truck past it. Some fire chiefs, but not all, are willing to reject the 20-foot clear once they learn that it was written for cul-de-sacs. And then I talk, so I talk about broader intersections and unwarranted traffic signals, but that's basically the, the conversation on that, uh, on that issue. I'm, so, glad you, um, I'm glad you read that because it, it is, I, I think one of the things that people don't get from a conversation like this is just the, uh, the common sense friendly tone of your writing. You, 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 you are- <laughs> no, I do. I do think it's it's approachable. You, you are. I mean, I will just say this, and and not trying to, uh, you know, uh, we're friends. But your writing is really good. I mean, I I enjoy. I don't read many planners actually because I don't like planning writing in general. I love your writing. I think it's. I think it's very good. I wish you would write more actually. Because <laughs> I write all. I write a lot. I know. To, yeah. So um, you know the the uh. 
the, the good thing, I suppose, is, you know, I was working in a city. I'm not going to name it because I don't want to get them in trouble. Sure. But the fire chief came in and he goes, we, we demand the 20 foot clear. Mm. And I said, well, that's really a problem. And I explained why. And he goes, oh no, but the, that includes parked cars. Like I need 20 foot clear, but then you can park in it. Right. And I was like, oh, okay, we're done. You know, no okay. problem. Yeah. So there is some room for interpretation. Um, this guy was very smart. Uh, he was just doing it his way. But right. anyway, that's that, that there's there, there's more to be said on that topic. I'm sure. But that's about as much as I know. I, I'm going to go to this question from Josh. Uh, Josh says that you, Jeff, you were referenced in Paul Hawkins drawdown, which I, I don't, I'm not familiar with this book um, or, or blog or whatever it is. Um, it says here, walkable cities ranked as the number 54 solution to reversing global warming. Can you talk about the additional side benefits of walkability? And then in parentheses, he puts health, environment, economic, et cetera. Um, yeah. Go for it. Well, 54. Yeah, that's what, that was my kind of thought. I was like, 54, maybe fifth or fourth. <laughs> no, I mean, if, if, you, if you understand, you know, it's like climate change. I don't believe in, in climate change. I accept climate change. If sure. You, if you understand and accept that, that most pollution comes from the mobility sector and most of that comes from commuting and that um, of one sort or another. Uh, and the principal way that we can have a smaller or a larger carbon footprint in our lives is by making the choice to drive more or less Then uh, that would suggest that the number one or two way that you can combat uh, climate change is by um, allowing more people to live in, in more walkable places. Right. There's a very clear correlation between um, uh, housing density, which is a uh, stand-in for urbanism, and uh, minimizing, you know, it, it, there's an inverse relationship between housing density and, and the production of, of carbon, right? Right, right. Um, and then there's the, there, there's the larger issue, and, and um, the best book on this is called Green Metropolis by David Owen, and I quote it a lot in Walkable City. And one of my chapters is, you know, is the, it's called The Wrong Color Green, and it talks about how we've been addressing the, the climate issue the wrong way. But he makes it very clear that, yes, pollution from the um, transportation sector is a huge, maybe the biggest problem. But in fact, the real issue is that an automotive-based land planning system causes us to spread out in a way that we're 10 times more wasteful than we would be in a more urban environment. And this is the kind of stuff that you talk about. You right, know, right. The, the excessive and unnecessary and actually unaffordable street systems and sewer systems and electrical systems that are going great distances to bring utilities to uh, limited numbers of people because of this landscape that's only been enabled by the fact that we have this presumption of one automobile per, per human, right? right. So, um, so that, that's a big, that's, you know, part of a much larger climate uh, discussion. But I talk in both books, you know, in, in, in Walkable City, I have three first chapters um, that are in this first part that's called why walkability. And I talk about my experience as a planner of having discovered these three groups that were much better at talking to people about making better cities than we planners were because they talked about things that people cared about. They talked about economics, which of course you talk about. Um, they talked about the environment uh, and they talked about um, epidemiology, you know, the health, the right. health of our society. Right. And, and um, you know, the, uh, the economic story is all about how we've burdened ourselves with tremendous costs, not just because of suburban sprawl, but because of, um, you know, this carapace of steel that we have to carry around with us wherever we go, this two ton thing that, that we, you know, we used to pay 10% of our incomes on transportation in the seventies. And now we pay 20% of our income on transportation because of this system, this stupidly inefficient system that we've created for us. Right. Um, so there's the economic argument. And of course, walkable city also talks about, all the indications about all the people who want to pay a lot of money to be in more urban places. And you can correlate property value with walk score and how much um, more, um, you know, how much more productive in terms of creating new patents, for example, urban places are over suburban places, all that stuff. Um, there's a chapter that I alluded to that I just discussed already with about the environment. It's based largely on David Owen's book, Green Metropolis. 
And then there's a chapter that's based largely on a great book called Urban Sprawl and Public Health that you might remember from 2004, written by uh, two epidemiologists and a planner, um, that basically says, look, the reason why we have the first, the first generation of Americans who are expected to live shorter lives than their parents is because we've engineered out of our society the useful walk. You know, right. Walking used to serve a purpose that caused us to be active. And yes, our diet sucks, but in fact, activity is just as important. It's calories in and calories out. And, and we've made it so that the standard condition of the you know, typical American is to get no useful activity. You have right. to add it on. You know, something you add on. And when people add it on, they, they don't keep it. They don't keep doing it. You know, right. unless it's a part of their daily lives. So those were the three categories. So each one of those, which was a whole big chapter in Walkable City, is a is a one page, is a two page rule. I have you know cell walkability on economy, cell walkability on climate, cell walkability on um, health. But I added two more because I didn't feel confident in the data uh, or my my capacity to explain it uh, six or seven years ago. But I do now. Um, and there's one which is um, community, right? Cell walkability on community and the formation of community and, and actually social health of the, and that's, that's based in part in some of Robert Putnam's research about how suburbia kills social connections and how, of course, long commutes mean that you don't participate in, in stuff in your community. And that's pretty well documented. Uh, and then cell walkability on equity and not right. just walking, but biking. And there's really some, there's some verses that in terms of who relies on walkability to get around and who relies on, uh, on a transit to get around and also who's being killed in traffic by cars. Um, it's a large part, the people with the, you know, the least uh, economic strength and, um, you know, demographic minorities who are suffering uh, much more than, you know, your, your, your average American. Right. Um, but, but the surprising thing is cycling. And everyone thinks of cycling as this elitist thing. And they picture when they picture a cyclist, they picture, you know, what we call the mammal, the middle-aged man in Lycra, right? right but right. Uh, it turns out that 39% of the people who commute to work by bicycle come from the lowest 25% of income earners. Right. So, so there's a real, and certainly similar for walking. So actually when you invest in a bike network, you're making a uh, investment in social equity. You're, you're helping those in your community who have the least. So uh, that one's a little bit surprising. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. I think we have time for one more and I'm going to, I'm going to ask it. Um, actually, I've got two more. I'll, I'll do the, I'll do the second one really quick. Um, as we're talking today, there's a bunch of names of cities that have come up. Des Moines, Davenport, Grand Forks, I, I want to give you a chance to talk about how your work and your books and the stuff you do is not just a coastal thing. It's not just a big city thing. Can you talk a little bit about how this really is a North American and, and really, I, I think beyond that, but for our North American, largely North American centric audience, uh, this is not just a place. This is not just a book for people in DC and Boston and New York, San Francisco. No, in fact, you know, in fact, um, I wouldn't use the term not just. It's, it's almost not a book. <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. Sure. No, I. I... But, but, you know, most, most Americans don't live in these exceptional, big, progressive cities. Right. We've got plenty of big cities that aren't exceptional or progressive, right? And then we've got um, the, the standout cities that, um, that have been leading the way in terms of best practices like New York and Boston and Portland and Seattle and maybe Denver um, and a few others, right? A few others. Um, my, my job in my writing, but also my job in my practice, and I don't work in New York, I don't work in Seattle, I don't work in Portland, um, is basically to, to distribute these best practices that are being tested and proved or disproved, but at least figured out in these, these more progressive places to distribute these to the communities that might not have otherwise had access to them. Sure. And so um, the book does that. And, you know, my, my typical uh, client is a midsize city in a uh, non-coastal elite zone. And somehow they put up with me, you know, this Bostonian who went to school forever. But, but I really, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, 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 I'm 
not really pushing the envelope. It's only in the places I go that I'm pushing the envelope. Right. No, I, I feel like, like I said, I feel like the book is very approachable, very readable. I'm going to get a copy for all my fellow planning commission members here in my small town uh, because everything in here is central to the things we struggle with every day. So I, I thank you for writing it. L- last question. What's let your me favorite? Say before, let, me, let me say before you ask it that I, I okay. think you know, this audience, the Strong Towns audience, which I admire and, and know rather well, um, I think this is the audience for the second book. I think yeah. probably a lot of you have already read the, the first book. If not, I think you'll really enjoy the first book. And the main reason the first book did so well is it's fun to read and it talks about planning in a way that is, you know, hopefully exciting. But the, this, this second book was written for, for your audience, almost like explicitly. I see that too. And actually, we've got a couple of people in the comment section who have said they've just, they've just bought the book. So we've uh, sold a couple of books for you here in the last hour and hopefully we'll some more. I mean, I, I, if you're listening to this, go, go get this book. You will, you will be very happy. You won't regret it. You won't regret it. Um, what's your favorite? You've got 101 rules. You've got to have a favorite. Yeah. What's your well, favorite? Well, I kind of hinted, I kind of hinted at that because I, I told you I had to add one more. Okay. I guess it's not my favorite, but it's the one that I would call to your attention because it's, it's, it's the newest one. Okay. Um, I have rules I really enjoy about not falling for autonomous vehicles, uh, about realizing that Uber and Lyft actually are probably you know, are necessary, but we need to treat them uh, according to the fact that they worsen congestion and worsen mobility, ultimately right. in urban places. Um, but the, the rule I had to add which you may have heard me when I spoke to the plenary at CNU last year, um, Congress for New Urbanism, um, but it's called Don't Let Terrorists Design Your City. And it's about how uh, the, the mandate to harden cities around fear of some sort of car attack or other thing um, is actually a losing battle. Uh, it makes the landscape less um, accommodating. And it's, it's wasting money that if it was redirected towards making streets safer would have a uh, incredibly much greater positive impact on public health, you know, and because terrorism, because terrorism is perpetrated upon us um, and often by people who don't look like us, uh, you know, the amount of money that we throw at it is disproportionate. Um, but the effectiveness of that investment is pretty much zero because there's always a, there's always a soft target and we're always defending against the last attack when there's always, you know, there's, these are smart assholes but they're smart you know there's always sorry midwestern audience um but you know there's always a always a new way um to do it and um you know the the terrorism is is statistically insignificant i put it down there and and then um i talk about how in another chapter but i refer to it here there was a um there was a street in queens that was that experienced Queens, New York, that experienced 186 car crash deaths. And they, inv- and they invested $22,000 per victim, right? And a victim is worth millions of dollars, right. according to the federal government's rules. But they invested $22,000 per victim, finally, and traffic calmed it. And now no one's died in four years. Right. $22,000 per victim. Uh, if you do the math, and I, this isn't my math, if you do the math, we've invested $1.7 billion per victim of 9-11. Right. Right. So that's a bit of a comparison. But anyway, you can see that I'm, I'm very passionate about this. Um, but that, um, you know, if, if the, the others, the, and I know you're running out of time, so I'll just end with this little sentence. Um, with a limited investment, child traffic deaths in the Netherlands went from more than 400 in 1971 to just 14 in 2010. A small fraction of our current anti-terror budgets transferred to road safety would save thousands of lives. And so um, that may be my favorite rule, but it's the one that, it's the one that upsets some people. Right. Maybe that's why I, I, I like. There's a, I, 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 I appreciate what you said just now and also earlier about um, kind of, I think the social benefits that we're starting to to recognize, and I, 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 you know, you said a few years ago I wasn't as confident talking about them, and, 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 and I'm, I'm with you. I think the awareness 
of how badly we need each other and, and how, you know, the spaces that we've created are really not conducive to human life. It's not human habitat the way we're kind of evolved to, to deal with each other um, is having some real pernicious effects. And, and I, I appreciate yeah. what this book is doing to help us knit some of those things back together. Absolutely. Jeff? You know, even, even when, when I started doing this uh, with Andres and Liz, uh, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 25 years ago, uh, even then they were saying uh, that it's, you know, the chance encounters between non-family and friends uh, in the public sphere that are responsible for the advancement of civil discourse in our society. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, I love talking to you and I, I uh, really value the ability to, to take the time to do this. Um, thank you to everybody who logged in and attended and had questions. Jeff, you got through like 12 questions, which I, I, I don't know. That seemed really a lot more than I thought we would get to. Great answers. <laughs> well, I tend, to give, I tend to give long answers, so I'm surprised we did that well. But um, thanks, everybody, for listening. And I do hope you'll check the book out and, and Chuck, keep doing what you do. Keep doing what you do to build strong towns. Yeah, walkable city rules, 101 steps to making better places. You got it there again. Can you hold it up so people yeah. can see it? And if you're listening to this on Pretty podcast, sure. we're going to have that. There we go. We're going to have the link to it uh, on the website. So go there and pick it up. Walkable city rules. Jeff Speck. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank Take you. Care. See you soon. <laughs> see you soon. Bye-bye. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.